Hello and welcome back to the Stuck in Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Zandan. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we speak with exec coach and psychologist Gajanan Ravichandra. With the demographic of our listeners, we felt like this was a topic that we've all had to wrangle with at some point or are currently thinking of. So we dug in with Gaj about the stigmas and pressure to choose certain careers, advice on how to choose a profession and also pivot from one, how Eastern and Western values shape attitudes towards careers and how psychology plays into these topics. We received a lot of practical advice from Gaj, so we're really excited for you to listen. There was actually so much we covered in this episode that we ended up leaving our listener questions for a mini episode which we'll release next week. So make sure to check that out. Now on to the episode. Gaj, thanks so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. So excited to be here. Thank you both for uh, having me. I can't wait to see where this conversation is going to go. Um, yesterday was actually my last day with a company that I've been at since mm-hmm. I was in my final year at uni. Mm-hmm. And when I was going through the uh, process of deciding to leave and figuring out what the next step was, I reflected a lot about the content that you've been posting on your Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's only scratching the surface of your knowledge and expertise when it comes to this topic but I feel like with a lot of the content that you do post it's stuff that anyone can apply in any profession at any level Mm. and it's not only a professional level but it's also things that you can apply to your day-to-day life Mm. and how you interact with others as well so we're really looking forward to picking your brain Um, but for the benefit of our audience could you tell us a bit about yourself your background and your upbringing? Yeah, sure. So um, I uh, was born in Sri Lanka, in Jaffna. Moved here in uh, on September first, nineteen eighty-two. We arrived into you Canberra. The date exactly. Yeah, it was a very <laughs> momentous occasion, yeah. right? Um, and so I think in the early days, very much knew that I was an empath. I think mm. that was something that was very clear. And the first time I realised that, I was watching a Rajinikanth movie, and um, my grandmother and my mother both had tears rolling down their eyes. It was in this very, you know, momentous kind of emotional scene. And I had tears, you know, rolling down my eyes. And I thought, oh, my God, that's where I get this from. Mm. Right? I looked over to the right and my sister and my dad were there and they were kind of just plainly looking at the screen and yeah. things were fine. So I think that's the first time it registered to me that perhaps I've got some of these qualities from mm. this side of the family that were a little bit different. Mm. That's really touching to hear. The term empath is something that I only learnt about recently. Could you explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so an empath is typically someone who has a high degree of emotional connectivity with people around them, mm. people and situations. They're able to f- tune into things that most others who are not empaths are able to. That is partly because of a sensitization to a part of our brain called the amygdala, which is a little peanut part in, our, in the centre of our brain. Uh, and that can be, for some people, quite highly wired. Mm. And so it, it's a bit like a superpower, and we'll talk about superpowers later today, I'm sure. But a superpower that doesn't have control can cause problems. Mm. Mm. And so when you start to learn to control it, then you can actually start to manipulate and use it in a positive way. Mm. And so I think for me that connectivity to people and situations was really important and that really helped in terms of being able to connect to people and to help understand their problems. And Mm. that was something that I started to realise I could help with very early on. From being like that as a child to uncovering maybe that you are an empath, how did that then lead to the whole side of personal development, leadership? I mean, it's not necessarily a 
obvious career path I suppose that as a young person you'd be like yes I'm going to become a you know someone who helps others with their personal development Mm. so how did it lead to that I'm sure it was a long path but could you summarize and tell us a little bit about that? sure yeah so I think psychology was the path that I took and that was not an Mm. easy path because it was a path that no one in my family knew about so if you talk Mm. about imposter experiences and, and syndromes it was there every day for me in that journey and I think through psychology, I learned that there were some techniques and approaches that I could use to help people to develop themselves. Right. And so a lot of that really stemmed to the bias that I have, which is that all of us are really controlled by our minds. Mm. And as a result of that, the control that we exert dictates our future. Mm. and dictates the way we live our life, how we live our life, who we spend our time with. And so ultimately the way we develop ourselves personally is key to then achieving the life that we want to have. And I think early on in my career, I had some phenomenal mentors and coaches. I got very lucky in that space. And those individuals challenged me and put me into situations where I had to get comfortable with discomfort. And because of that, and you guys talk about this, you know, on the podcast as well, right? All of your guests have this in common. Mm. There's a very common thread. And that is the idea that once you get uncomfortable that's when you unleash the mm. opportunity for your development. Right? Yeah, there's a quote, right? Life begins at the end of your comfort zone or something like that. <laughs> it's such a good one. That's right. <laughs> but was that, um, I guess that was a big concept for you to be understanding or thinking about when you were making that decision to start a degree in psychology. Was that an easy choice for you or were you kind of pushed down a certain direction but you knew that your calling was somewhere else? Yeah, I mean, I think intuitively I knew that I didn't want to take on one of the big four, Mm. right? So back in my day, I'm a little bit older than you guys, you know, we had, you know, law, medicine, engineering and accounting, right? Mm. IT was coming up, but it wasn't necessarily in the core sort of selection of groups. So I think in those days, it was very clear that, you know, I was going to go into one of those. It was probably going to be medicine. That's where most of my sort of alignment was going to be. Mm. I did not have the diligence to kind of go and do that, to go through that rote learning and to go through mm. that process of learning. Um, we have this thing called need for cognition. It's mm. a really important thing uh, to understand from a career perspective. So we either have a high need for cognition or a low need for cognition. Mm. A high need for cognition person is someone who's a deep thinker. They're someone who likes to look at a problem. They will literally sit there and work on it, look at options, look at the different ways of being able to come up with an answer. And they're less action-focused more thought-focused. A low need for cognition person, this is me, is very much someone who likes to think about things and then get on with it, put Mm. it into practice. So you go from thought to action, thought to action very quickly. And so for me, I needed to be in a job or an occupation or something where I wasn't being drowned by theory Mm. and I could put things into practice quickly. Mm. Either we don't think about this in that way, but imagine having to do a job where you are constantly having to be surrounded by theory and knowledge and that's the thing that drives you but all you want to do is see how it works Mm. right it's exceptionally frustrating Mm. and so I I think intuitively I knew I was a low need for cognition person and so that helped me then to say okay I want to take some theory I want to put into practice and see what happens Mm. which end of the spectrum do you think you're on I'm low cognition yeah I think I'm high you're high now like 100% now that we see how each other work right in the podcast definitely I I was thinking the exact same thing while you were explaining the definitions isn't that interesting so how does it help you guys when you're kind of then working together what does it look like I think it sometimes it helps and sometimes it hinders Mm. because we both want to meet the same end goal 
but we have different approaches as to do it. Mm. But then on the flip side, it helps in that we kind of keep each other in check because we get a perspective that we're not working with someone who's exactly the same as yeah. us. Yeah. Right? So we get that balance of seeing something different in someone else's lens. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And being empaths help you, right? Because then you do want to actually see from another person's perspective, mm. right? Sometimes when you're not as empathically connected, you're kind of focused on your own journey and your path. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit more challenging than yeah. to understand and reflect on somebody else's path, right? So would you say that it was your passion to understand the psychology of people along with your, I guess, human nature as an empath, which led you down the path of, from psychology, then becoming more of a leadership coach? Yeah, so there was a couple of things that helped me along the path. Um, The first experience, I think, around that was in 2001, when I was an intern psych, I went to the Speedo manufacturing plant, you know, the budgie smugglers. right, yeah. And that day, the general manager was shutting down that plant. And the 70 people that work there were being told that they were going to lose their jobs. And that was the first experience I had of what human behaviour within a workplace context, the extremes of behaviour, right, that you can have within a workplace context. I think I was 23 years old. So you start to understand then what is going to happen to people when they're being told literally in 10 minutes that they no longer have jobs. Mm. So you see people who are catatonic, completely frozen with shock, right? You see people who are weeping, upset about what they're going to do with the rest of their lives, that maybe they're the primary breadwinner, right? And this is all they know because they've worked here for 30 years and, and that's what they've done. Then you had people picking up chairs and throwing them around the room and mm. you know, full extreme. And I think in those moments, I realise it's self-leadership, mm. right, that comes first. Because in that moment, you may not necessarily be able to lead a whole group of people. You might need to start with yourself mm. and then you need to go and support other people because you need to deal with yourself first mm. right, and what's going on in your own mind for your, your future, your family's future and everything else. So that was yeah. my first job, right? And you sometimes see the lack of humanity that is presented to people at arguably the worst point in their professional lives. So how do you bring that humanity back to them, right? And I think that's part of what really made me excited about doing that kind of work is how Mm. do I use the psychology to help people find a path or a paver way for them to move forward? So that was a challenge. Um, and that required them to take on a certain number of skills, skills that they might not have had. Mm. Those kind of things, I think, were really important in terms of learning how do you commit to things that are coming up for you? Mm. How do you overcome problems, right? Um, How do you show confidence at a time when everything around you is telling you not to be confident, Mm. right? right? How do you then take control and see what is in your control at that time Mm. when things are looking bleak? So... That part, I think, led me to then think about how do we structure things for people in a way that can help them to improve themselves, Mm. even in the toughest of times? What is a formula that is going to be beneficial? And and that's something that we've been working on. Mm. Wow. So was it all of these experiences that then led you to start Compass? Because that's a company that you run now, right? Like what made you then take that decision to then starting Compass off the back of that? Romy, I didn't have the courage at that point to Mm. to get into Compass. It's a good question. Um, So I had to go through a few more jobs to develop a few more skills Mm. and to get exposure to a few more people. Mm -hmm. That was my life journey that I needed to go through. And, And probably the biggest of that was moving to the Middle East. And so when I turned 30... My wife and I, and we had a one-year-old daughter at the time, mm-hmm. decided to go to a place I'd never stepped foot in in my yeah. life. We took a job offer, blind. Yeah. Right? 
And we went there in May of 2008. And fortunately, and I don't know who, probably my grandmother is up there looking after me, but a job offer came up about a year later uh, with a guy called Andrew Banks. Shark Tank. He's the Shark Tank guy, yeah. So I flew to Sydney, met with Banksy, and he wanted me to set up the HR consulting piece for their business in the Mm -hmm. Middle East. So that was phenomenal. And he was my mentor. Mm. So I had this guy who was considered a bit of a demigod in the business world, just randomly. This is what I mean by luck. And he taught me a lot of things about setting up a business and what it means to run a business. And about three and a half years in, he actually said, look, what are you still doing here? You need to actually trust yourself (laughs) and move on. Mm. Right For you and your family, you need to go and set up your own thing. Mm. And so I listened to him and I didn't do what he said. (laughs) (laughs) I went off and I thought, I've got one more gig in me left, corporate gig. So I took on another role, lasted nine months. And it reminds Mm. me of that proverb, right? When life gives you little hints and when you don't want to listen to it, it ejects you out of the situation, Mm -hmm. whether you like it or not, right? Mm. And that's what happened. I got ejected. Yeah. And out of that, I'd known a couple of people and we set up Compass based on values. I'm going to talk about values, I'm sure, a lot today. But values are the thing for me that ultimately give you success in any part of your life, mm-hmm. right? The alignment with your partner and your personal life to business relationships to whatever it might be. Mm. And I'm sure for you guys, you know, when you're sitting here working, part of what keeps you together is that alignment or the synergy, mm-hmm. right? And sure. understanding and appreciation of your values. Yep. So... I think having to go through the business stuff because I I wasn't great at the commercial intelligence. But eventually I had to learn how do I combine my passion, which we'll talk about, with a couple of other things to then ultimately say, well, what is the purpose Mm. of this company? Mm. What do we actually want to create in the external world in terms of impact? And that's how Compass was created. Right. So what is the purpose of Compass and what do you do with the company? What sort of services do you provide? Yeah, so we actually now are purely a coaching company. Mm. So we give people coaching across a couple of verticals and then we train people to become coaches. They're the only two things that we do. So we work with business schools. Mm. I'm currently coaching at Harvard and INSEAD and London Business School and I lecture there and we also work with corporate and government institutions Mm -hmm. and also with sporting teams. So this was something that we wanted to create for ourselves is complete freedom to work across industry anywhere in the world. That was something that as partners, there were three of us that created the firm, we wanted to have no limitations on who we could reach and where. Um, One of my mentors used to tell me, you know, you're going to pick these business partners. You can outsource for everything except values. Mm. So Mm. make sure your values are pretty much aligned because you're not going to be able to change this once you get going. And so that part for us was super important. And I think a lot of the arguments and, you know, problems that we would have faced, you know, in our business, you know, we've been up and running for nine years, are values-based. They're not issues related to other areas of our business, right? We can work through those pretty quickly, but if there's something around the values, we tend to then start to question Mm. what's going on, where is that coming from, and what do we do now? Mm. How many people work for Compass now, and what's your favourite part of running Compass and doing what you do? Yeah, Um, so we have about 17 associates across five continents at the moment that deliver on different projects. Mm. Um, My favourite thing to do... uh, I was going to sound really crass when I say this. I have three billionaires at the moment that I'm coaching, wow. and that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Like, they're really fun. 
Yeah. And they have this immense freedom and at the same time it's almost like they're prisoned, mm. imprisoned in their mind, right, on various things in their life. Obligations, things that are just ridiculous that yeah. they have to face. And that is interesting for me, particularly around risk. And we'll talk about risk when we talk about culture and how that impacts mm. careers. Yeah. But the thing that has freed them in their minds was the ability to take risk. Mm. And this is something we don't get a lot of in a collectivist culture, mm. which is really interesting. Right? And so I think in lots of ways that part for me has been eye-opening. And you know, we work with you know, thousands of students every year through the business schools that we work with, mm. and that's a privilege mm. for me personally. I really love the face-to-face time yeah. I get to have with people. Yeah. I hate looking at a screen. I'm so happy to do this. Besides COVID, I was going to be here in front yeah. of you guys. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but no, yeah. we love it. No, it's a different type we of much energy. prefer yeah. doing face to face. Yeah, mm. yeah, definitely. Well, you spoke just before about the risks in our culture, <laughs> um, and I think you know there are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to careers. Right, there's certain values and attitudes that are put upon us and I won't say mm. that's specific to South Asian culture but yeah. we wanted to pose a few questions to you mm. in terms of you know certain ideologies that maybe we have and how the West and East tackle those differently and get your perspective on that if that's okay of course yeah let's do it so the first one you just alluded to yeah we've spoken on the podcast in the past about how Western individualistic values shape the attitudes towards certain topics compared to how Eastern collective mindsets shape different attitudes towards the same topics. How do these different broader or bigger picture value sets feed into how we look at things like our professions and careers? Mm. Yeah, that's a, I mean, such a multifaceted, (laughs) multidimensional question. So if we go back a step, right, and we think about the world that we're in, um, I think we've all heard of the term VUCA, right? No. So this is the way that a lot of the business schools at the moment talk about the world that we're in. So VUCA, so it's volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, and it's ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Now, how that makes us feel is the extension of that, which is another beautiful acronym called BANI, B-A-N-I. It makes us feel brittle. It makes us feel anxious. Mm. It is non-linear, right? We can't just keep thinking that I'm going to keep taking the regular steps and it's going to get me to the end point when the world is non-linear, right? And the last one is incomprehensible. There are a lot of things out of our control. Mm. And so we're living in this world which is very different to the mindset of what we used to have when we think about our careers around a little bit more predictability Mm. and a little bit more of a linearity in our careers. If you think about it, Careers are chaos. And so when we think about chaos, there are two things. One is sometimes chaos looks random, but if you ask a mathematician, they'll tell you, I can create a formula that can help you to predict it. And it's true. There are patterns, right? And so I think when we think about our careers, we also need to think about patterns. And when we look at a collectivist culture where we might be thinking about the greater good, and working together and that the decisions I make don't just impact me, they impact my family and Mm. my community versus an individualistic culture which is driven by individual needs and motivations, right, and that creative expression and ultimately risk-taking, right? Because you're willing to take risk when there's less shame or fear or guilt, right? The things that all of us as Southern Asian kids Mm -hmm. are taught to understand, right, really well. Whereas a collectivist culture, you're looking at harmony, cohesiveness, mm. interdependence, right? And because of that, 
that leads to conformity, mm. right? So if you put your head above the precipice, you're going to get a cut off, right? Don't go and pick a career that's unstable, mm. that you don't know enough information about, right? So yeah. why don't you just pick these four or five or six that are over here that we can predict, right, mm. where you're going to end up. It's going to be safe, right? Mm. You know what income you're going to get from this path. Now, the issue with that is that is really reliant on a world that is predictable mm. and that, that is linear, right? We don't live in that world. I think we need to come to grips with the fact that that is the case. And so when we're making decisions about our careers, then we need to think in a non-linear fashion. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You've got like people like us and even yourself, Gadge, where you were brought up in one society but your family's from another. Mm. It's where you've feel like you're trying to grapple both things like Mm. you want to please them but at the same time you're exposed to these individualistic cultures and I think there's good and bad in both Mm. but maybe you know sometimes you need to lean towards one more than the other if there is something that you really want to take the leap and do maybe you do need to lean into more of the individualistic side whereas the South Asian-ness comes out and you're like oh no but like what are people gonna think what's my family gonna say you know it's just like that constant push and pull you're absolutely right guys and I think you know one of the things that's interesting is if we were to break down careers we could actually look at how this plays out right Mm. so there are four main kinds of work if you like There's knowledge work, right, which is, you know, you get rewarded for knowing more in your profession, you know, becoming an expert, Mm. an academic, whatever it might be, right? And there's a path that you would follow. Then there was skills-based work, right, which was, you know, it could be trades work or it could be things where you're asked to physically do things. Then there's entrepreneurial, right? So you create a product or a service and you then take that and then you build an entire ecosystem around those products. Mm. And that goes out to your audience and you delight your customers, right, with those products and services and you keep developing and morphing and improving them. And then you also have freelance, right? Mm. So this is where you take your skills and you go to somebody and say, hey, I can help you with a little piece of work on doing this or adding to your strategy or executing here or introducing you to some people, right? This is the first moment in history right now where all four are required for success moving forward. In the past, you could have survived on knowledge and skills alone. We are now moving into what we're calling the fractional employment world. This is where we're going to move away from full-time work to perhaps two part-time jobs. And in fact, in the US, 20% of people are already doing this. Right Now, that means we need to become better at selling ourselves. We need Mm. to improve our personal brand. We need to become more entrepreneurial and risk-taking in what we do. So this is the first time, actually, in human history where this is happening. And In Mm. fact, when you talk to futurists whose job is to predict, right, jobs 10 years from now and life 10 years from now, it is very clear that we are moving that way. So if you imagine your life 10 years from now and what that needs to look like, if you are in a world where you're not encompassing those four elements then you're going to find it difficult mm. right, to compete and to you know, provide your services. Yeah, wow, that's so interesting. So I guess given all of that, and you said before it's super non-linear when it mm. comes to your career, what would you say needs to go into deciding a career versus what actually goes into deciding a career? Like mm. what do people consider now versus what should they be considering instead? Yeah, so if I was to take the example of a Southern Asian, so our kind of background, right, we would look for that conformity and stability and security as a part. So it's not uncommon, therefore, that we would find people who are lawyers and doctors and engineers and accountants by day, 
and they're a fashion designer at night, mm. right? Or an author or a playwright or something else, right? Mm. It's quite common, I think, right? I mean, you guys have had many of those talented individuals on this show, yeah. right? Which is wonderful. We're seeing that transition. We're seeing people, right, make that shift. But there are a couple of elements that I think are key to understanding. That. The first is passion, and it's an overly used word, right? Mm. These are things you're good at and the things you enjoy doing. It's the intersection of those two things that we're interested in, mm. right, from your passion. Then it's your values and motivation. Your values are the things that are important to you, right? Mm. Then there's motivators, internal and external, what you call intrinsic or extrinsic, right? So extrinsic are your salary, your status, prestige, it's the car park space, it's all of those things that mm. you might get, right? What we know is that after six to nine months of fulfilling those extrinsic motivators, you pretty much go back to zero, mm. right? And then you're looking for the next extrinsic variable. The thing that we need are these intrinsic. It's that sense of collaboration and teamwork and achievement and fulfillment and, you know, those internal drivers, mm. right, that help us. In fact, I've got a, um, a values and motivation questionnaire. If you like, I can make that available for you guys and your readers. They can go through a process mm. of actually uncovering their top eight values yeah. and motivators we use it in some of the business schools but they can download it and use it for themselves maybe that's something that we can do Romy, and then mm. do a mini episode on, on how on the results that we got yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that'd be fun you guys yeah. enjoy that yeah um so that's one part these other things which are the intersection of what you're good at and what you enjoy doing these are called motivated skills this is typically the missing piece and if you think about it as an equation right passion which is these motivated skills times values times motivators, which are all internal, will give you the opportunity to have purpose and impact mm. on the external world, right? So mm. internal and external. Now, the balance needs to be there, but you need to understand what is happening in my internal world mm. right, and what is important to me to then be able to go out in the world and create some sort of positive impact. Mm. Right? Yeah. So purpose is external. It's not internal. Right? You're not doing a purpose for yourself. Mm-mm. You're doing it for the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you get your head around that part, I find that sometimes that can be really helpful for people to then break down what they want to be doing yeah. and where they want to focus. Yeah, wow. Because all of those points that you spoke about just then never really crossed my mind. Like you think of, okay, what do you want to do as your career? You think of, oh, I enjoy doing this or this mm, is where my yeah. passion is. Maybe that's something that I should follow or this might be what I'm good at. Yeah. But then you're making these decisions when you're like 16, 17 (laughs) years old in Mm. high school when you don't even really know yourself and there's so much pressure to have to pick this career path, right? And you've got to do that degree and then maybe not waver from it later in life because that'll also set you back. And that's a different topic and we'll bring it up in a Mm. a little bit. Mm. But it's so much pressure to put on people at Mm. such a young age without giving them these Mm. thought-provoking points that you just mentioned because it's Mm. those types of subjects or topics are not really brought up in high schools either. Like maybe they are now, but, you know, not when I was in high school. So Mm. I think that's one thing. And then the other thing is, I feel like a lot of the time people don't often look at what they're good at or what they're passionate about and then pick a career accordingly. I feel like sometimes it's backwards. It's Mm. like the opposite direction. Your parents go, okay, you should be an engineer. (laughs) So therefore, what are all the subjects you need to do? What are all the skills you need to gather throughout your 13 years of schooling to get there? Not the the flip side, Mm. but I feel like it's so common. And Mm. we like, I've seen this happen with a lot of people around me, my age, you know, 
But hopefully it can go the other way, particularly with all of these changes that are taking mm. place that you're talking about. It's becoming more and more non-linear. Mm. So maybe you can't go backwards anymore and the yeah. opposite direction. So imagine, I mean, you're right, Rami. I mean, imagine instead of starting with conformity, which is where these conversations mm. start, we start with excellence. Mm. What would that conversation look like between a parent and a child? Where would my child excel? Where would they be happy and fulfilled and content based on what they're good at and what mm. they enjoy doing? you might find some crossover in some of these professions, yeah. right? It's not like you have to do one job. And it's something like 70% of people who do their undergraduate degree never work in their undergraduate yeah. degree, right? So let's not get too caught up in yeah. what they study. But it is important. It's a data point, right? Mm. That's important for them. I think the other thing is, you know, there's a saying, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. So if you're trying to choose a profession and you've not really had an interaction with anybody mm. in that profession or actually spent time and talked about what's great about this profession, yep. what sucks about this profession, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if I'd known how much admin is related, I might have chosen this, mm. right, As a, if I was purely practising as a psychologist, right? And so I've had to work my way around how do I avoid that? It's called job enrichment. How do I enrich my job and do things that I actually enjoy doing? So I think, yeah, those elements are really important to kind of consider. But I think it goes back to... What's in your control? Mm. Start with excellence as the conversation. And I think that can make a massive step to that. I mean, there's so many things I was told not to talk about on this particular podcast. But I think even <laughs> like arranged marriages. I'm not going to name anybody. <clears throat> my wife. Uh, <laughs> but arranged marriages. Mm -hmm. I know it's off the topic. right? But if we started with values rather than culture, mm. that would be a really interesting way of looking mm -hmm. at things. I've got my own theory around diversity of thought and those things in our own careers and our lives makes a big difference. You only need to look at a child of a mixed ethnic union and you get to see how beautiful they are. Mm. Nature is telling us something, <laughs> right? Mm. So if nurture is getting in the way of that, mm. I think we have a problem. And so I think, I know we're getting off the topic, but... We need to look at the diversity of thought that comes into the yeah. decisions that we make. Yeah. yeah, I don't think it's off topic no. because to your point, like you said, it's the diversity of thought that... Um, so we put out a call out on our Instagram asking for questions to kind oh, of throw yeah. back at you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting because you've answered a bunch of them already. Cool. So we might not get to them <laughs> at the end of the episode. But one of the questions was, you know, is the education system built in a way mm. where we are able to develop those skills, to understand ourselves, to make those career choices when we do leave school? You know what's fascinating to me is when we look at the education system, I would rather have switched algebra <laughs> around and probably included how to have hard conversations. Mm, yeah. That's the thing that most yeah. of the people that we coach have real difficulty yeah. with. They're the big problems in their life. Mm. That's where their issues with their work their mm. marriages, mm -hmm. their kids, mm -hmm. that's where it stems from. It's not trigonometry. It's yeah. not how those other factors come in, right? Mm. So from an education perspective, are we teaching kids how to be more mindful and to control their mindset? Are we teaching them how to have these difficult conversations? And are we able to teach them how to manage their money? Mm. Those would be the three things that would immediately come to mind that need to fundamentally change I think from an educational mm. perspective at schools, yeah. right? So if there are people out there that help to do that, and there are some wonderful apps and you know programs out there now that are supporting that, there are some big shifts that need to happen. Mm. Sure. Mm. Mm. One of the other things that we all do as humans when it comes to not just our careers but just our life in general is comparison, right? Like we compare our lives to the lives of others or we get compared to others as children when would you say comparison is 
like a healthy thing versus when it can actually be destructive in nature. Mm. Comparison is something, particularly in a collectivist culture, that we are Mm. raised with, primarily because we're very much hierarchically driven, right? In a collectivist culture, there's status and so forth associated. Comparison can be really positive when you're doing it to better yourself Mm. or to inspire yourself to something. I find that when you're comparing yourself to other people in any part of your life and for you to feel better about yourself, you need to put that person down so there's a win-lose mentality Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. comparison, then you're probably using the wrong tool or mechanism Mm. right, for yourself. So immediately, something that I have to keep checking myself on because it's an ingrained, you know, sort of part of how I was raised – was you need to say, oh, look, that's a wonderful quality that this person has gone out and done this, mm. these wonderful things in the world. What can I learn from that person? Yeah. Right? Yeah. What am I inspired by? What is it that they've been doing that I feel like I can take on that's going to be helpful for mm. me? So I think it's one of those things where if it's for inspiration, if it's for improvement for self, mm. comparison can play an important role. And I think we have to accept that hierarchy is there in every species on the planet. It exists. Mm. And so... It's not about denouncing hierarchy. It's about what is the value that I'm gaining from hierarchy where I can learn from. Mm -mm. Mm. So this mindset is a self-check for us. Mm. If it's inspiration, great. If there's a win-lose coming in there somehow, it's probably an opportunity to reflect and ask Mm. yourself, why am I doing this? Yeah, I was about to say, it's the why, right? Mm. If you do feel like you're comparing yourself to someone or starting to get jealous of someone else, Mm. I think it's important to recognise within yourself, why am I feeling this way towards this individual? it's highly likely that it's nothing to do with them and everything to do with me (laughs) and something that I'm going through that I haven't quite figured out or unpacked yet. And I think the other thing as well, especially when you're comparing children, for example, which I know can often happen, Mm. it's important to not just say, oh, look at so-and-so's daughter who got this mark or is doing X, Y, Z. I think it's more important to explain how that person got to where they are as opposed to just, oh, they're there now and Mm. you're not. Mm. I think like almost just saying, you know, these are some of the skills that this person has possessed Mm. to get to where they are. That's something that maybe we can work on for you to also put into your own life because that can help you. I think those are more productive conversations than just consistently being compared to because I know you know so many people, it's so yeah, common, yeah. whereas it's not really a productive conversation because it just makes you like almost feel worse about yourself. And it's also, I guess, another thing to reflect on is how your experiences are different to the other person's experience in what they've achieved. So mm. to your point, Romy, instead of just comparing ATARs, we're not factoring in the fact that maybe someone else was having a challenge that the other person yeah. didn't have to face or yeah. their upbringing or environment was different to the other person. Mm. So not making comparisons without putting it in the context mm. of, I guess, everything else that could be going on mm. beyond that metric. Absolutely valid point. And I think, you know, we've all had our own journey to get to where we need to. And I think you know, having that awareness of what that means. The other thing is also I'd love for us to be able to change the conversation that we have with our family, our kids, our relatives around not what people have done but who they are. Mm. And if we start talking about that, Mm. things start to change. So it's not about the outcome of what they've achieved. It's who they were through the process as they went there. And because people don't have that answer, they're not interested necessarily. Mm. Everyone likes to look at the entrepreneur driving a Ferrari and going into their Monaco apartment, right? That looks amazing. We don't know what's happening behind the scenes. So I think if it's who rather than what, I think is going to be the key aspect there. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Um, Another thing that we were kind of reflecting on of something that Romy and I need to work on individually in different ways 
is being better at setting boundaries, mm. both in the workplace, in our personal lives and in our limitations as well. Um, could you shed any words of wisdom you have when it comes to setting boundaries when someone might not be so good at that? So we didn't do this podcast at home because I'm so bad at setting boundaries with my kids that it would have been so much noise going on in the background. So you're probably talking to the wrong person about boundaries <laughs> on a personal <laughs> level. Um, but having said that, there are hard and soft boundaries that I've set, right? Hard boundaries are ones that are non-negotiable, right? These are core to who you are. For example, if someone's going to lie to you about something, I got late because of this, they have to know immediately that if they've done that and it's not true, then it's not acceptable mm. to you, right? And it can be delivered in a way with compassion and understanding and all the rest of it, but it is a hard line for yeah. you. Then there's soft ones, a little bit more flexible. It could be about how someone might even talk to you. Their style might be very direct, mm. right, in their approach. But unless we understand what that other person's style is and have awareness of that and then some flexibility or soft boundaries – then that has a chance of working, right? If you've got hard boundaries around that, it's not going to go anywhere mm. positive, right? So choosing what are hard and soft boundaries are important. The boundaries are really for yourself, right? So these are self-inflicted or self-imposed lines that you want to draw in the sand. Mm. Uh, the challenge is not to then impose that onto other people, right? Your boundaries are your boundaries and your boundaries only. It is not somebody else's responsibility to fulfil your boundaries, yeah. right? It's your responsibility to make it clear what your boundaries are. Mm. You do that at work and you do that in your personal life. How you deliver that is a crash course because there's a whole bunch of theory and you know I have this concept around just because you read something doesn't mean you've learnt it, mm. right? You've got to just go out there and yeah. practice it. Apply it. And there's going to be some mistakes. There's going to be issues. You're going to upset some people potentially, right? I think intent is one thing, but we can't keep blaming intent uh, mm. every time you know i've got family members who do that right oh they're coming from a good place rasa don't worry yeah. about it it's okay <laughs> yeah. really for 25 years they're coming from the right place and they keep coming up with the wrong outcome um <laughs> so you know you've got to draw some boundaries there yeah. now at some point maybe i should have been responsible mm. for setting some harder boundaries mm. right rather than letting these individuals go on for 25 years and me getting frustrated right. as a result of that so i think those kind of things are important Mm. Um, one of the things we touched on this before is I feel like one of the biggest barriers and one of the biggest questions that maybe people have once they've finished a degree or done a course or something and they've gone into one career path is the fear of changing that career path mm. right because we're often on a pursuit for stability which we've already discussed is you know not really going to happen <laughs> because of the way the world's <laughs> working right now <laughs> which is great news yeah welcome <laughs> the uh, <laughs> type A in me is like <laughs> not enjoying this um, but you know that's something that a lot of us fear because we're like okay if I'm 30 or 40 and I pivot to a new career path like that's gonna set me back in air quotes what advice would you have for someone who might be feeling that way so there's probably lots of information that can be provided here and I think one of the things about understanding a career change is firstly why right what is mm. the reason behind the career change what is it about your current career and where you're up to and how it aligns to your passions, your values, your motivators, that seems like a misfit. That's the typical reason why people want to have a change, right? Yeah. So understanding that means, ah, okay, we identified a few things internally that aren't resonating for you. And then it's about coming up with a plan around the kinds of 
jobs and industries that are out there mm. and how you want to structure your day. Right? What, what does a typical day or week look like for you? Mm. So once we go through that process, you actually then start to narrow down and we have this process which is a, like a job search plan. right? Mm. So then you start to look at the kind of target industries, the target companies, broken down by the responsibilities that you would have in your job. Mm. And so then you start to see, well, where are the skills that I've got and the knowledge that are transferable? How am I going to sell myself into this new industry? So say, for example, someone wants to move you know, from accounting into marketing, mm. right? those kind of roles. There's lots of ways to do that and it doesn't need to be that you jump from A to B immediately. Mm. Right? There could be a C yep. right, that you jump to. Maybe you go and join a marketing company as an accountant and then that mm-hmm. then allows you to get access to that role. Now, your network is your net worth, right? So the contacts you have add considerable value to your career change opportunities. So the more people you talk to, the more people you get information from, allows you to then be able to make some informed decisions about the kinds of companies, the kinds of cultures, the kinds of opportunities that might come up for you as well. So you need to have some structure Mm. and understand why you're going through that change. You need to create a plan for yourself around what that change is going to look like in terms of steps and the targets you want to have. And then you look at what is my network? What are they going to do to contribute towards helping me in Mm. this role? A lot of people, a lot of organisations struggle to look for people cutting across industry, right? They want to have a cookie-cutter approach. Mm. So this is where your network can be really helpful because if they can sell you in or help you to do that, you're going to take a couple of shortcuts Mm. towards that as well. Otherwise, you're going to have to break some serious paradigms in people's minds or have such a strong personal brand that they feel like they know you already. Mm. And so this is where social media and you know LinkedIn and those kind of aspects can make a big difference because I feel like I know Romy, right, from her posts and kind of get a sense of her personality and her skills and who she is and that she'd be a good fit in the team and that she'd be responsible, right, mm. just from your posts, right? And that's setting a particular image. And so... I think those things all feed in with each other Mm. to contribute to making that kind of change. Mm. Yeah, and I guess maybe another thing that helps is obviously being comfortable with taking one step back to take two steps forward. So if you need to go back and retrain or learn something new, but if that option isn't there, finding that balance of how you can work towards that while still not rocking the boat. Mm. Something I was reflecting on now that I've just wrapped up, I spent the last four years in the role that I was in didn't enjoy it, but for one reason or other, I just stayed. Um, so whether it be COVID, I didn't want to rock the boat or starting the podcast, I was in kind of pilot mode in that role. So I got mm. really frustrated because I wasn't learning any hard skills that I could really transfer, I felt. But I realized that even though I might not have skills that I've learned that I want to transfer to my long-term plan with my career, I think being in that role has taught me lots of soft skills mm. and it's really challenged me in a way where there was lots of times where I could have just quit and walked away and I was ready to do that, but I stayed in and I pushed through. And for me, I think that really helped my confidence and my resilience. So um, I guess looking at it in hindsight, I'm not as regretful for staying as long as I did Mm. because it has taught me so much about myself and grown me personally, even though those skills might not be as transferable. Mm. Man, that's awesome. I feel like a little tear in my eye. (laughs) listening to you just in terms of how you have taken that experience and flipped it reframed it Mm. right and it's given you so much like having to go through that process Mm. you also know what you don't want now Mm. right and i think that part of then connecting back to well if i was to put some words around 
what those things are, then you can do that, right? So it becomes a little bit more tangible. Yeah. Mm. Um, I feel like we could talk to you for hours and hours. And we had to cut a bunch of questions just because <laughs> we're getting so much out of you. Um, but I guess as kind of a wrap-up one, mm. could you talk a little bit about the difference between personal development and professional development? And what I, th- I think sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming not knowing where to start. Mm. So what are the little steps that people can take to work towards something like that? Yeah, Having some sort of goals, mm. sort of micro to macro goals are really helpful. And we know that because of this VUCA world that we're in, it's very hard to predict, right? Mm. What's going to happen even beyond five years, it's so hard. So if you were to come up with a plan of, say, over the next you know, two to three years of some of the skills and knowledge that you'd like to acquire and what that might look like, that can be really helpful to work backwards, mm. right, to understand what those things are. Yeah, And I think personal and professional development, in an ideal world, they are intertwined. So when you're working on one, you are helping yourself on the other side of the spectrum, right? Mm. You know, I've got a friend who's a ex-sniper, you know, in the Australian Army, a special forces yeah. guy called Bram Connolly. And he used to say, you know, we've got this self-mastery that we need to manage first, <coughs> right? Mm-hmm. So the self-mastery is what are you personally developing around your health, around your mind and around your body, mm. right? And if you're focusing on those things, that's going to help you professionally, right? The, mm. the fitter you are, the better you sleep, all those things we know connects to your professional mm-hmm. development. Mm-hmm. The other thing is a bit of a comparison thing. Look at other people that you actually look up to, yeah. right? Have a look at some of their paths and their journeys, right? We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Sometimes you can take elements of what they have done to then be able to then look at opportunities. Mm. A mate of mine who's an ex-professional footballer, Alan Nielsen, used to play for the Tottenham Hotspurs and Bayern Munich and Denmark, wow. a couple of, you know, three World Cups there. He has something called the one-third rule in personal development. He says one-third of your time should be spent with people who have lower performance and are at lower levels to you. Mm-hmm. So you're playing a mentor, a coaching role. You're learning and reinforcing a lot of the things that you know. Mm. Then you take one-third with your peers, people who are at your level, operating at the same level of efficiency and effectiveness, and so you are working with that group and learning from each other. Mm. But one-third of your time should be spent with people better than you mm. in various mm. aspects of your life, Right. And it's difficult to get to the one-third who are better than you because those people tend to be time poor Mm. and, you know, they have lots of demands, but it doesn't mean it comes from one or two people. You can have eight to ten people Mm. that sit in that category, right? So I think from a development perspective, firstly, ownership. It's called personal development for a reason. Don't wait for your company to give you a course for you to go on, Mm. right? It's not their responsibility. I know that sounds terrible and people have given me hate mail, you know, for this. It is your responsibility to take your personal development forward. So show the initiative. Put down a list of hard skills right, and soft skills that you want to develop and take that initiative and spend time with people from different levels so that you can continue that journey as well. Mm. For sure. Yeah, I like that you mentioned about like it first starts with yourself as an individual in terms of your health, your mind, because I think that's something that I'm struggling with at the mm. moment just when it comes to like time management and balance. Yeah. Um, and I know like perfect balance is, you know, you can't always achieve it, but, mm. you know, that's something that I'm completely neglecting right now because there's like a lot going on with podcasts and work and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I know... I know in my mind that it's not going to serve me in the long run Mm. because I will crash and burn at some point. (laughs) So I think it's a good reminder and it's something that I've been, yeah, just thinking about more recently as well. Like we say it and we say, oh, you know, mind-body balance or whatever it might be, but there's so much 
legitimacy to that because you yeah. think of all these quote unquote like successful people that you look up to they all say the same thing that they meditate mm. or whatever they do exercise they look after themselves and you're like okay there's yoga for be four hours a day in the morning <laughs> <right>? really <laughs> really do you have time for that but at the same time there's like so there's many common threads yeah, that yeah. these people have and you're like okay there's got to be some sort of mm. validity yeah. here mm. that i need to also start actioning in my own life at a smaller scale what do you do for yourself in yeah that so, I mean, luckily I have a dog. Um, Luca, golden retriever, is fantastic. You have a golden retriever? Yeah, so do I. I know. Oh, my God. They, aren't they awesome? They're the best. They're awesome. Okay, you have to show me photos later. Yeah, I'll show you. Anyway. He's, uh, he's special. So, <laughs> so um, walking the dog every day mm. is, a, is a big thing for me. That's when I get to listen to my podcasts and, mm-hmm. and do all those things. Recently, I've been getting resistance bands because I've been mm. told as I get older that it's my core muscles that I need to be working on. And that's something mm. that's really important. So, from a physical perspective, it's that. Sleep is the next big thing. Yeah. So I've gone from getting five and a half hours sleep to about seven and a half hours sleep in the space of about three months. Mm. And it has changed my life. Like I just feel so much better as a result of that. Um, and I think saying no to things yes. is another big factor. Oh my God. And so again, it goes back to essential versus desirable mm. for me, right? And if I start classifying those things, and look, I used to put my health off as well. And I kept having to question myself. I've got a couple of mates that hold me accountable. So this is another thing. Mm. Having people around you that actually help you to understand the value of your health Mm. and sometimes make you uncomfortable about that is really helpful. Mm. I'm terrible at holding myself accountable around my health, but I know that I will not disappoint my mate waiting at the gym for me at six in the morning. Mm. Mm. So play to your strengths, right? One of my coaches used to tell me this. He said, look, God, you're a Taurian, right? And I went, yeah. Taurians are really stubborn, right? And I went, yeah. So use your stubbornness against yourself, right? <laughs> so when you think, oh, I don't want to go to the gym today, be stubborn. Tell yourself, you know what? No, I'm not going to listen to that voice, <laughs> right? I'm going to go and do this. Right? Yeah. So play to your strengths. And my question to you, Romy, would be, mm. if you know that your health is important, why do you feel like you're not putting mm. the emphasis on it that you need to? yeah. I think for me, it's like, I know it should be a priority, but I'm saying, okay, I'll go to the gym or I'll do a bit of exercise. But then that's the first thing to go when I have Mm. things to get done. Whereas my partner is so disciplined with that. Mm. You know, he's the one that makes me uncomfortable (laughs) and gives me very, (laughs) like keeps me accountable for that stuff. But then, you know, there's only so much other people can do as well. Like I really just need to just mm. get off my ass and just go and make that sort of a priority for my day mm. instead of it being like the loose thing that can go. Yeah. You know, I think that's my problem, whereas I know that shouldn't be the case and it should be the other way around. Like I should mm. centre my day around this one thing mm. that I should do for my long-term mm. happiness and health. Like things like sleep as well is another one, I suppose. And time, um, downtime. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's just something that I need to get more disciplined at and just mm. say like, okay, this is like an hour that I need to, mm. that's a non-negotiable. Mm, I think yeah. that's what it needs to become. Look, I see a lot of people who, you know, very high performers, right? And they really have an obligation and a drive to be successful and fulfilled and all the rest of it until they have burnout, until their body ejects them mm, out of the yep. situation, right? Clue, 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 clue. Here's a clue. Here's another clue. Here's another clue. Bang, right? You're out. And I think it's at that point where we realize no one is coming for us, just ourselves. We have to be there for ourselves. Mm. Right? It's only when I get to do that at the highest level 
that I get to perform at the highest level. Mm. Right? They are interchangeable. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I totally understand where you're coming <laughs> from. I'm not preaching to so- um, it's like coming from someone who's a pure spirit in this. So, you know, it's a it's a constant grappling. Mm. Right? Yeah. Mm. So our last episode was with the incredible artist Roy Singh. And the question she left for you is what is the first thing you tell an extraterrestrial if they landed on Earth? <laughs> Such a good question. <laughs> Um, what would I tell an extraterrestrial? Okay. Oh, there's so many questions. My God. Um, uh, I would say that as a species, Homo sapiens, we are in a really interesting place at the moment. And there's a lot of discord around the world. And I would love to know, assuming they're a higher being, what they do to kind of create unity and mm. to create love and to create understanding. Mm. I feel like there is this real lack of disconnection that is going on right yeah. now. And I'd love to learn whether that's something that they grappled with, whether there's something that they've solved, and maybe that's something that we could use. Mm. I love that. And so it's funny, I saw a meme recently online where a similar question, mm. and the response was, I've got a square device that fits in my pocket that gives me infinite knowledge, but I only spend it looking at videos of cats and getting into arguments that don't matter on Twitter. So, yeah, that's right. That's a good response. Too. Yeah, and my name is Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah. I think this is, that's the thing, right? Mm. Uh, what question do you have for our next guest? What would be a problem that you've had to face that you would want to use now as a superpower? Right, so what have you done that has turned something into a superpower for you? How did you do that? What was the mechanism or the process, right, for you to do that? And how does it help you in your life? Mm. Yeah, I love that. We've been getting some really good questions to wrap up the episode Mm. recently, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Um, Awesome, Gudge. I know we've spoken on the episode about personal and professional development, and I feel like conversations like this play a part in that development mm. because mm. I feel like you've made me reflect on a lot yeah. um, and, and hopefully our listeners as well. So mm. thank you so much thank for your you. time. Thank no. you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, guys. And by the way, I think what you're doing on this podcast, you're actually unleashing people with superpowers out to the world that other people would not have seen before. Right? There's so many people through this podcast that I didn't know about until you introduced them to me. And I think we may be stuck in between, but this is exactly where we need to be. Yeah. This is actually the place that is going to be the world where we get to create value for both extremes, right? Mm. The individualistic and the collectivist. And I think being stuck is kind of a nice feeling sometimes. Mm. Right? Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. Mm. It's funny how when we started it, we always looked at it as, oh, it's a challenge being stuck in between. But now it's become a way of reclaiming our identity mm. and celebrating the place that we're at. So yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode and took away advice and insights that help motivate you. Gaja's handles and links are below, along with the questionnaire we spoke about in the episode. So make sure to check that out and find out what your core values are. Join us next time for our interview with Jerusha Mothers, a cerebral palsy advocate who is on a mission to be the first bachelorette with a disability. We thought this would be a great episode to wrap up Disability Pride Month, so make sure to keep an eye out for it. In the meantime, remember to catch us on Instagram at suckinbetween_podcast. underscore podcast. Until then, we'll see you next time. Bye.